That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, Jake, this is going to be a great Sunday uh, to preach a sermon to tell all women how they should behave. So it's going to be a success. Especially just coming from, you know, guys like you and I, right? But before we get to that, como uh, estas? How you doing? Uh, está bien, gracias. I'm doing all right. And so, uh, hanging in there. Or estoy bien. Excuse Muy me. bien. Uh, anyway, so uh, doing all right, hanging in there. And um, yeah, getting ready for, um, I mean, we're in the thick of it already. And it's in August, so what are we going to do? But anyway, here we are. You're in September and life has gone on and... The fall is probably around the corner, and uh, people are there, and they really want to know how to be a Proverbs woman. Well, and and they've come to the right place, Jake. Uh, I think the rest of this podcast should be just rebranded as you and me telling women how they can be better. Absolutely. Well, that, I mean, I have been longing for this day for the last three years, and so this very moment to preach on Proverbs 31. Oh, I remember our one time. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I remember one time walking into... This was in my, like, Methodist days. No, I'm just kidding, Methodist. But uh, this was in my, like, when I was going to do it days. And um, Getting uh, it done for the Lord. Yeah, my hardcore non-denom days. When um, I remember we went over to a friend's house, and sh- that particular person had, like, printed out Proverbs 31 all over their house to remind them what they should be. And I just was like, I remember thinking, like, like kind of like the hardcore, like, do-it-yourself Christian in me was like, that's amazing. But then there was another part of me that was like, oh my God, this is really crazy. And uh, it was crazy. But that's our first uh, reading today, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. So get ready, everybody. Yeah, so it's interesting. I will say from the beginning, number one, (laughs) we'll tell you how to preach this, but please don't preach this passage. Uh, Second, it is horribly misused. What about the whole counsel of God? I know, I know. It is horribly misused. This passage is like... It's it, this this passage is um, uh, it's, it's just used to make people make women feel terrible about themselves. And it's set up as like a formula for living, which I don't think it is. In some sense, it's more like what the Sermon on the Mount is for people. Yes. This is for women. So the Sermon yeah. on the Mount is Jesus's perfect distillation of the law and how you should live to be a perfect human being. And the result of the Sermon on the Mount is not, we can do it. Let's try harder. The result, the proper response is to say, oh my God, I need a savior. And to come to Jesus where you find that. And I think Proverbs 31, I mean, I sort of wish the Bible was more fair and that it had like an equally crushing passage for men. Like, (laughs) where is a perfect husband? Uh, Who can find that? Why is there not a man who plays no video games and only fixes things around the house all day, draws home a large salary and has a perfect work-life balance and is always emotionally present for his children. Um, Like, where is that crushing passage? Um, 
for people to clobber us men with. I, I, I'm sorry, women, that there this is passage which is used to um, really set up an unattainable standard. But I will say, we'll, there's a couple we'll things. Talk about it. The, uh, there's a couple things. If you want to interpret it rightly, it's good to know that the word "capable," "excellent," "virtuous" that appears in verse 10, the beginning of this passage, a capable wife who can find, an excellent wife who can find. The word is actually more often used in scripture. It's chayil in Hebrew, and it's more often used to describe an army. Um, and you could uh, translate it as like a, a warrior-like woman who can find. Like it's it's a it's a word that is often you know when you translate it excellent or virtuous, those are sort of seen as like you know your brain already because of the cultural t- teachings around gender you begin to think like a meek and humble woman or something in a denim jumper but here it's more like a Joan of Arc sort of situation like who a, a kick a woman uh who can find um that's what's really going on check your hebrew concordance and you'll see that i am right also mm-hmm. i'd say overall this passage can't be seen as almost um, empowering a woman above what maybe many people think biblical womanhood is, uh, or what you know roles, gender roles for women in Christianity traditionally have been. Um, it shows her having a job, <laughs> uh, employment outside the home for which she's paid. It shows her having legal and financial rights, responsibilities, and privileges. She's able to buy a field. Um, and manage it. Uh, so, um, so there's there's kind of an empowering thing for women here um, in some respects. The other thing uh, uh, I would say, though, about this is that it is sort of an impossible standard. I mean, whether this were applied to men or women, it's like it it kind of. Um, uh, there's almost like a workaholism here, a tad. Like it says, her her lamp does not go out at night, which basically means like she pulls an all-nighter every night. She's like spinning, uh, you know, the the distaff and the spindle. Like she's she's turning wool or flax into uh, thread all day, all night long. Like there's just it's it's a pretty rough. I mean, it's a great picture of somebody who works hard and gets a lot done, but it's but it's sort of almost unattainable for people. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, clearly, I don't know if you remember Jordache jeans. I do. They were uh, they were really they were like the epitome of cool in the 1980s, and I encourage everybody to um, go go to YouTube and watch an old Jordache jeans commercial. It is the epitome of 1980s cool. But this was the woman who had it all together. This was the woman who snapped her fingers on the beach. Uh, this was a woman who looked danger right into the face and wasn't afraid. And at the 80, in the 80s, Jordache jeans were really expensive. Now they're sold at Walmart. Yep. You know what I mean? And it's like, uh, and then now they are, I mean, you can't even really sell them anymore because, well, it's not cool. But um, that's not the point about being cool or not. The point is, is to like kind of try and you can't achieve this level of of perfection all the time. This is, like you said, I think... That is a great illustration, not the Jordache jeans, but this is the Sermon on the Mount for women. And, uh, you know, as a, as a bride, as a Proverbs 31 woman, whoever you are, a failed Proverbs 31, you know, our life is found in together in the Bride of Christ. And uh, one who has claimed us and looked over all of our misgivings and has said, I love you anyway. And the other and thing really begins to change things in our lives, not trying to do live up to some sort of ideal. Right. And the thing, too, um, 
about, as I've said, each time we look at the book of Proverbs, the Bible does not end here. And you need to take Proverbs sort of as what it is. Like, they are great descriptions of how to live, which almost nobody is able to follow. Really, nobody's mm-hmm. able to follow. And and that's why we have a Savior. So the Bible does not end here. The other thing to kind of keep in mind is that there's some stuff in Proverbs that, you know, it's an accurate reflection of what people thought at the time, but uh, you got to understand the context and maybe not read everything in a completely kind of wooden uh, way like you would read your car manual or something. Like the Proverbs 31, this is the passage everybody always quotes, verses 10 through 31. But right before this, uh, it's got instructions to a king or ruler saying that they should not drink wine or beer because they'll forget the rulings they have made. But wine and beer is totally cool for poor people who are suffering because they can get drunk and forget their problems. So it basically sounds like a recipe for Moe's Bar and The Simpsons, just like middle-aged men, depressed and alcoholic. Uh, And... Which, not good advice. Not good advice to drown your sorrows in wine and beer. Also, the whole Proverbs uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 10, is deeply problematic for those who are teetotalers. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, like I would not take the first 10, 9 verses of Proverbs 31 as like necessarily good advice for living. And I think for Proverbs 31, verses 10 through the rest of it, about the, you know, the, the warrior woman, um, I would uh, also you know, see that in its context, see that it's an empowering word for women contra maybe how they were usually perceived. Um, mm-hmm. In that sense, it's almost a proto-feminist statement. I mean that to say That's that good. Uh, women are human beings as opposed to uh, property or something like that. Like it's an empowering word in some sense. But when we bring mm-hmm. it into today uh, and use it as a way to make women who already feel the burden of the law in their lives in so many ways as just another law for them. I think that's where this verse turns into a real, it does a disservice to people. Um, so dear listeners, there is only one who's been the perfect Proverbs 31 woman. And that's Zena warrior princess. <laughs> I knew. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Uh, okay. So don't preach on this passage, but if you do, we've maybe given you some things to think about. And uh, drop Xena Warrior Princess in the mix. <laughs> so we, everybody will love it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great word. Um, so then we come to James once again. Uh, the so book of <laughs> Jaime. Why, why is he called Saint San Diego in Spanish? What's that? I never understood that. Saint James. No, it's San and Saint. And then, uh, well, I know um, that. Thank you. Uh, Diego, which is uh, goes to the word Yaakov. Okay. So, which is James in Hebrew. Okay. So, there you go. Well, thank you very much. Clearing that right up for me. Um, thanks, white guy, teaching a Mexican about its own language. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so who is the wise and understanding among you? Clearly me. Back with the so, wisdom. But... <laughs> yep. This passage should be retitled Jacob Smith. Uh, Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Here we are. Um, but such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. I mean, it's just, this is a description of the way things are. Yep, and, it, and, a, and an accurate statement where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Yeah. So, but wisdom, and wisdom from above that is first pure, 
been peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, is not anything we've come up with, but is the gospel, a word from outside of ourselves that points to the one who has sown a harvest of righteousness and peace. And, uh, and we are the fruits of that great harvest, you know, and uh, now uh, by virtue of his work are called peacemakers. So that's how you get to the gospel right there. Yeah, and there's also something I think really insightful about what James has here, which gets to the fact that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only his brother, but also a disciple and someone who heard Jesus teaching about what was inside human beings and the heart of a person. Um, And it's it's just, I mean, it's a great insight. You know, many people credit Christianity and the writings of St. Paul and the teachings of Jesus Christ with this kind of understanding of the subconscious or that there's like a, there's subterranean emotional things going on in the hearts of human beings that even unbeknownst to your conscious mind are driving your behavior. Um, and he says, these conflicts and disputes among you, this is chapter four, verse one, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? Uh, you want something, do not have it, so you could murder, you covet something, cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. Mm-hmm. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly, because you want to spend what you get on your pleasure. So there's there's this insight that even when you're doing things that look good from the outside, like standing up for the right in a church dispute, or you're asking God to provide and showing faith, but he says that there's a motive underneath that that is twisted, that is perverted, uh, that is uh, bent. And so uh, this is um, this is just another place in the this scripture is- where this Christian understanding comes of, of what is going on. And he says, so, you know, wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. This is a person who is at peace with herself. This is a person who... Um, knows that she is loved and forgiven and is does not need to assert dominance over other people. So, uh, um, yeah, so this is James giving that insight. But again, uh, just having that insight, just convicting people of sin is not uh, where you end. You begin there and then you move on to what he's, what James does in verse 7, submit yourselves to God, which is basically mm-hmm. to uh, throw yourself on God's mercy, not try harder to do better, but as he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, which is just another, it's a it's an appeal to receive the gospel in a sense, to, to yeah, receive mercy. I mean, there's a... There's a continuation of that right right before that in chapter four, where I mean this is this is the law. Those conflicts there are those, those conflicts and disputes among you. Where do they come from? You know, well it it is it is that inner part of us that is just wicked and curved in itself and wants to serve itself so much so that that's why he says you do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasure. You know, we love to fashion God into our own image. You know, we love to um, to just yeah. I mean, get God to get God uh, to uh, to uh, serve my personal interest because He is the God who serves us, but not the way we want, but the way we need with His body and His blood. But uh, we, you know, that's not enough for us. Is that it? You know, and yeah. so uh, we're always asking for something more. And this is. This is, I mean, this is the radicalness of what James says. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submit to the means by which God has served you. And these yeah. simple things with, with bread and wine and, and uh, a, gal, a, a, a rabbi from Nazareth. I mean, that's how you resist the devil because he has defeated the devil for you. And you draw near to God, not because it's like, 
like we were talking about in the po in, right before, like the cross isn't like the means to my better life, my James life, my Proverbs 31 life. But we draw near to God because the cross alone, where God has completely drawn near to us. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and under the shadow of the cross, the devil must flee from you. Yeah, draw near to covered in the blood. I think a lot of people wrongly understand verse eight as sort of a semi-Pelagian understanding of God. Yes. Like if I do my part, God will do His part. If I draw near to God through more journaling, Bible study, prayer, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and and you know going to church more, then God will give me what I want. He will draw near to you. He'll He'll do His part. I'll do my part. God does His. And this is not what He's saying at all. He's saying. Um, uh, <laughs> realize your own powerlessness and sin and fall on God's mercy. And then God's response will be shown to you. What has always been um, is that he is near to you. Because again, you got to interpret James in the light of all of scripture. God is not far away from you. So when he says he will draw near to you, that's his. That's in limited, finite human language, saying you will experience the fact that God has always been near to you. You forgot that, and it will feel like God is drawing near to you. But uh, Jesus Christ says the kingdom of God is here and now, and He's very near to you. Um, so uh, don't read this as like God is far away. God is always. Yeah. It's closer than a breath. The scriptures tell us. So, um, and as the psalmist says, when I ascend to the heavens, you are there. When I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So you're never far from God. So just know that this is saying not God does His part if you do yours. It's not if then. It's a um, if, if you open yourself to the mercy of God, you will find that He has been there all along. Amen. Yep. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. So we're kind of continuing from where we were last week. And um, uh, Jesus, they're passing through Galilee once again. And, um, you know, he wants to keep it down. Why? Because he's not trying to be secret, but he doesn't want to be um, basically made king for being a miracle worker or for being understood as an all-around wonderful entertainer. And so he is continuing to teach uh, the disciples what we know as the theology of the cross. Um, basically that, you know, it's not about moving from glory to glory, but about um, suffering and being betrayed and dying, and then marvelously, though, rising on the third day. Uh, But they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask, and they were afraid to ask because he is completely blowing their understanding of God and the Messiah right out of the water. And the gospel does the same thing for all of us. It blows it right out of the water. And oftentimes when we first come into contact with that, we're just, we are as well are afraid to ask. I'll never forget, we were um, in a class one time and, uh, with Paul Zoll, and I remember someone saying, well, Paul, if, if what you're saying is right, everything I've been doing is completely wrong. And Paul was like, well, yes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Those were the days. So yeah. the other thing here that's interesting is that James, who writes the passage that we just discussed, the brother of our Lord, also a disciple, uh, quite likely that he was there, one of the ones arguing about who was the greatest. And, and and so then much later, he writes these 
those verses we read in James about selfish ambition and envy and all that stuff, which clearly existed among the disciples. And so he's seen this and experienced this firsthand. He himself has been guilty of it. Um, and it's another incredible passage of the mercy of Jesus that he, um, as he's going to die, you know, we're four chapters from the end of Mark here. Um, he's passing through Galilee. He's getting ready to die. He's, he's, he's already predicted his death once. He's, he does it again in this passage uh, very explicitly. Um, and even so, they are more asking about who's going to be, uh, you know, uh, who's going to be Secretary of State and who's going to be Secretary of Treasury and Secretary of Defense when he gets to be king. Um, and they're more concerned about their own position. And which, I mean, can you imagine having a conversation about who's the best? But that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, it's like these rap, you know, rap battles where it's very common to sort of like put down other rappers and say that you're the best. Um, and uh, and that's what they're doing. And he says, um, no, you, you got to be last and got to be servant. You got to be like a, a little child. So here Jesus and Jesus amazingly does not give up his mission at this point. Say, nope, you guys don't get it. Uh, here I am getting ready to give myself for you, and all you guys can think about it. Who is the best one of you? Who gets the biggest gold star? The disciples. I'm done. No, he continues on his message, me, mission to die for them, even though they're just completely out to lunch. Yeah, and I love how whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And you know, it's immediately you know we we turn this into like another competition, another thing we got to do. So I've got to be the last of them all. You know, I've got to be the servant of the of them all you know and um and uh jesus knows that this is running through their mind because we love to take these statements and turn them into ladders to climb to god mm -hmm. so that we can finally meet god on our terms and say hey i'm just like you but in light of what he's been talking about the son of man is to be betrayed and here is the very first of the first i mean the very um uh, the very image of God, who did not consider, though God, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, to quote Philippians 2. Uh, that's what it is, and this is what he's talking about. And so he knows that they're thinking that this is some sort of reverse about how to be the most humble. You know what I mean? Because this is right. the culture that they're in. This is the culture that we're in. And so what he does is he takes this little kid, which they all would have been like, what the hell is that kid doing here? And he takes this little child and he puts it among them and taking it in his arms, he said, then whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The point being here is that it's, um, that it's not about like, okay, now I'm going to offer myself as the very last. I'm going to offer myself as the very best of the nothing, but rather to realize like a child, you know, it's, it's only a relatively new idea that we've been marketing to children and think of them as anything more than human. I think mm -hmm. that actually began with maybe Freud. But prior to that, I mean, children brought nothing to the table. Send them into the mind because they've got the little fingers that can do things. And if they die, well, it's no big deal because they're useless. But it's like this child uh, brings nothing to the table. This child, by the world standard, offers you nothing. Mm. Uh, that's what this is all about. It's not about innocence. It's not about purity. It's about bringing nothing to the table in a vertical sense. Yeah, I mean, that child probably was like not super clean, maybe had like sticky fingers and... Uh, 
you know, <laughs> like a perpetual at, at snot best. running down their face. You know, like this is not a, yeah, yeah, like some sort of like, you know, fungus in the eye. Have you seen like a Yemeni child on video like to support? I mean, it is like that's what we're talking about here. So this is not a picture of power or health or success or anything. And a child doesn't have to try to be humble, especially in this context. This is likely a poor <laughs> child. Like this child just was humble like because they had nothing like they just had a really rough existence and so uh this is what he's saying i'm that child i'm with that person and um and striving for greatness uh is actually to identify with that child yes oh yeah yeah exactly not the way the world talks about it uh and you don't do that on your own instinct like in the moment you're thinking about it you're not doing it exactly that's the thing yeah this is description and so, again, it's another one of those things that we are not really good at doing or able to do on our own. Uh, and if we were, we would just feel really good about ourselves for how great we're doing and then put ourselves even farther away from the gospel. And this is just and another yet, one of those passages where, again, back to James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Admit your um, reality. Be honest about where you are. Um, fall on the mercy of God and you will find that God was right there all along. And so, and, and we do that Sunday after Sunday, powerfully, as we stretch our hands into eternity. Mm. And you hear the voice of your minister say, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. You got nothing in that hand, and then there comes a little piece of bread, you know. Uh, you get a little wine that says, uh, this is my blood shed for you. And um, is that it? Yeah. That's That's it. it. That's right. And, and Jesus, who says he is the little child, is basically saying, I am the servant of all. And he is your servant and my servant. And uh, that is the good news of the gospel. It doesn't feel right. What do you mean Jesus is serving me? Well, I know. But he is, and he does. That's who he is. Yeah. And in that moment, I mean, and this is how it kind of plays out pastorally. You know, James is like rebuking the church because you do not have, because you do not ask, you know. Right there, then we realize, you know, we're always trying to fashion God and get him to serve us the way we want. But there in that moment around the table in bread and wine, we're served the way we need. Hmm. Well, that'll do it for you, me, and Zena, the warrior princess. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know we crucified him, buried him, but... Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.